This is a podcast from the January 22, 2007 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the morning session relating to external influences and pressures in the recruiting process. The podcast runs approximately two hours and five minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. External Influences and Pressures in the Recruiting Process This session explores the culture and environment in the recruiting process, particularly in football and men's basketball, a subject of intense interest among fans of given teams. An entire industry has sprung up to assist prospects with marketing themselves to schools, assist coaches with evaluating talents, and, for the higher-profile sports and athletes, report on which prospects are being recruited and the preferences of those prospects. The popularity of websites like Rivals.com and Scout.com has prompted the mainstream media to cover the recruitment of prospects more intensely than ever. In addition to the pressure of responding to constant media inquiries about their choices, prospects have alleged that some employees of recruiting services pressure them to attend particular schools or persuade them to announce their choices at events sponsored by the recruiting service or website. This session also will explore how this environment influences prospects' college choices and the timing of their decisions. Do they get the wrong impression of the values and expectations in college during the recruiting process? Can colleges or the media do anything to diminish the importance of recruiting coverage or the unrestricted ways in which these external agencies operate? How can the process be healthier for prospects and coaches? Panelists for this session include Harry Edwards, who has been one of the most influential figures in sports and civil rights for five decades. He is an emeritus professor of sociology at the University of California at Berkeley. Malcolm Moran, who holds the Knight Chair in Sports Journalism and Society at Pennsylvania State University. John Bunting, previously the head football coach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Bobby Burton, who runs one of the most influential of the websites mentioned, Rivals.com. Bill McGregor, he has been head football coach at DeMatha Catholic High School in Hyattsville, Maryland since 1982. And also, Andrew Crummy is in his fourth year at the University of Maryland at College Park. He's a junior offensive lineman on the Terrapins football team. appreciate uh, all of you being with us to, for this important topic. I think everybody that's uh, concerned about uh, intercollegiate athletics and its role within our uh, academic communities is uh, concerned or, and uh, at the very least of that concern, I guess, would be interested in the huge changes that have occurred in the recruiting process. The influences that used to be uh, directly uh, answerable to either the high schools or the colleges and their various associations. Uh, now, of course, these influences extend way beyond uh, these traditional sources. And so this uh, group of panelists that uh, have accepted our invitation to be with us today I think we'll be able to give us good insight into uh, what all are the environmental influences 
that, are in, that uh, face young men and women, and particularly, uh, I know there'll be an emphasis on football and uh, men's basketball, simply because some of these are strongest in those particular sports. Uh, and I think the commission itself is very interested in maintaining a collegiate model and trying to uh, go at uh, understanding and, and uh, being sources of influence where we can uh, to maintain the type of uh, relationship that we have had uh, and should have with our potential student athletes, their parents, and the schools from which they come. And so uh, what we'd like to do is uh, have each of you make comments and then we'll hold most of our questions until the end and the idea being hopefully that in this two-hour session we would have about an hour in total of comments and then questions from uh, the panelists I mean excuse me, questions from the Commission to each of our panelists and so Amy Perko here I know has talked with each of you and I believe uh, in her conversations uh, Professor Edwards Harry Edwards is going to go first and so if you would, sir, go ahead and, and begin our discussion. Is uh, that we're all basically on the same side. Uh, there are no uh, enemies in this situation in the sense that somebody's out deliberately trying to undermine, erode, destroy, devastate uh, collegiate athletics. Um, at the current, uh, my, currently I have um, uh, four uh, clients that I am uh, working with, the San Francisco 49ers, who I've been with for 21 years. Um, Urban Meyer, when he took the job at Florida, asked me to come down and work with the football team there. Uh, Billy Donovan, um, I've been working with his basketball team over that, uh, that two-year period. And uh, Jeff Tedford at the uh, University of California at Berkeley. I've worked with uh, his football team. I was also director of parks in Oakland for three years and had a, uh, an up-close and personal view of factors that were influencing the character and direction of sport uh, right up through uh, the professional ranks. What I saw in uh, Oakland in 2000 and 2002, 2003, we're now seeing at the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, so I speak to you not just from the perspective of someone uh, who has been extensively involved with collegiate athletics and the contradictions and problems and challenges of that sport for the last uh, 40 years as, a, as an academician, uh, but as someone who has had a uh, tremendous amount of personal and uh, ongoing direct experience. Um, in the uh, in Volume 8, uh, winter 1984 issue of the Journal of Sport and Social Issues, I published an article uh, in 1984 I published an article entitled The Collegiate Athletic Arms Race. Uh, some years later, my good friend, uh, Vice Chancellor Heyman from the University of California, uh, I believe came before the NC2A and a number of other bodies and essentially uh, presented that article, uh, which, was, uh, which was fine with me, um, um, the, the, the truest form of um, uh, flattery is neither imitation uh, not even citation, it's theft. Uh, they, uh, they present it and get it out. And, uh, but we, um, as I told NC2A convention, we, we, we broke open a Hennessy's and, and, uh, and laughed about it. But uh, the, the, the basic uh, thrust of that piece was that uh, inevitably uh, the pace uh, and direction of sport uh, is established by uh, dynamics and 
factors over which no one has totally and total and complete control. The metaphor of the arms race bespeaks the dynamics of individual actions and unintended collective impact and consequences. Today, the collapsing and in far too many instances already collapsed traditional educational and cultural infrastructural, uh, infrastructure of our urban centers in conjunction with modern communications technology has generated circumstances that challenge the very integrity of sports at every level as we have come to know it. We should understand that sport in America has evolved through, uh, from a 19th century institution through a number of uh, developments uh, ranging from uh, tremendous in, uh, advances in media technology, through uh, racial integration, through the impact of uh, Title IX, and so forth and so on, uh, through the uh, establishment of uh, scholastic um, uh, athletic associations, the NC2A, the rise and fall of professional leagues, through the development of, as I stated, radio, television, and so forth, um, and still, it has been able to maintain touch, at least in many instances, and in some instances, management control uh, over its essential traditions, its personnel relationships and structures, and its goals. Um, allegiance to the school, uh, uh, team and coach, a commitment uh, to winning that uh, surpasses more individualistic goals, a respect uh, for the sport, its integrity, and its traditions uh, continue to a substantial degree, uh, continue to a substantial degree over the 20th century to prevail. Uh, today I submit to you that much of that is challenged, if not already changed. Uh, we live in a situation uh, where we have a deterioration of the social, social cultural circumstances among um, uh, the classes that traditionally have produced athletes, particularly in our urban centers. Uh, we have um, the uh, athletes pursuing paths of development that focus almost exclusively upon the individual as opposed to the more traditional development of athletes emerging out of a community, uh, cultural context with all of the controls and so forth that uh, pertain in that regard. Uh, the athlete is taken out of the home, the community, the school, the peer group, and groomed and uh, prepared uh, in camps, clinics, and at uh, its most extreme in selective enrollment schools renowned more for their athletics than for their academics. Furthermore, this individual emphasis is occurring at a younger and younger age with camps and clinics focusing upon grade schools and junior high school students, uh, student athletes in many instances. With the media and recruitment attention often generated through uh, participation in these uh, individual-focused enterprises compounded by uh, the contact and communications capac capacities of modern technology, especially the internet, no one should be surprised that today the elite athlete prospect has become almost totally commodified, a product to be developed and marketed, and uh, predictably, there are consequences that, for the most part, few anticipated, and virtually no one has programmatically uh, and effectively addressed in the sense of the outcomes of the total uh, collegiate sports institution. For, for example, uh, the uh, addition of another whole layer of contacts, developmental options, and athlete marketing and control almost totally outside 
the reach of scholastic and collegiate regulatory bodies uh, poses a threat to the very integrity of the amateur sports enterprise. Uh, over the last two decades, I have seen frightening developments relative to health considerations, just as another quick example uh, of, uh, as these pertain to young athletes. Uh, for example, in 1985, when I first started interviewing athletes for the San Francisco 49ers, our Super Bowl championship offensive line averaged 268 pounds. There were fewer than uh, 30 um, athletes in the entire NFL over 300 pounds. Last year in the NFL, there were 324 players over 300 pounds and 200 more between 285 and 300. And, and, and the source of the weight gain is clear. For example, I recently saw the weights of five linemen entering a Pac-10 university next fall. The average age was just under 18. Their, weights, uh, their weight average was 280 pounds, and they each anticipated getting bigger. The health issues, particularly with regard to high school uh, 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 high blood, particularly with regard to high blood pressure, diabetes, and other weight weight-related health uh, problems, are already being uh, raised um, by uh, practitioners of sports medicine. Uh, I'm now dealing with a number of issues uh, regarding, for example, uh, family and franchise support protocols uh, at the professional football level in anticipation of an increased number of deaths from these young men who are coming in at 21, 22 years old, 315, 330, 345 pounds. We had a young man die uh, two years ago. There have been a number of other young people who have died at the collegiate and professional level, and in almost every instance, they were people who, young men, who were grossly uh, overweight by any rational consideration other than the choreographed body uh, dynamics uh, necessary to participate in sport and become attractive to a college and so forth coming out of high school. And then uh, there are the social cultural issues that have uh, intruded upon sport and in many ways displaced traditional sports values and perspectives. With the, with the deterioration of the urban social cultural environment, there has emerged ghetto selective cultures uh, 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 defined and projected as legitimate largely through the media. If we simply look at the trajectory of pop popular culture since the onset of the civil rights movement, the evolution and change becomes clear. From 1956 through 1966, and these are just rough uh, years, but essentially they're applicable, when the civil rights movement was in full flower, the popular culture embraced in black society, expressed and projected the core sentiments and goals of that movement, particularly with regard to uh, uh, illustrative artistic uh, subjects and substance and the personalities involved. Black sports heroes were similarly cast. So in the 10 years 1956 to 1966, the middle class oriented, middle class led civil rights movement and its middle class goals were affirmed and reinforced in films such as A Patch of Blue, Lilies of the Field, uh, plays and movies such as Raisin in the Sun, The Defiant Ones, In the Heat of the Night where Mr. Tibbs was the lead actor, and of course, uh, who could ever forget Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. 
uh, all films where the lead role was played by the eminently respectable, supremely responsible, militantly middle-class Mr. Sidney Poitier. At the time, everybody's image of where the black male was headed. The popular music of the era was dominated by no less hopeful visions of what could be and where the Negro was headed. The impressions keep on pushing. Nina Simone, to be young, gifted, and black. Donnie Hathaway, someday we'll all be free. And who were the preeminent entrenched athlete heroes and icons? Still, Jackie Robinson, Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis. But already there was, a, on the, uh, well this side of the sports cultural horizon, uh, a young man by the name of Cassius Clay, the Louisville Lip, who had, strongly, who had, who had uh, strangely changed his name to Muhammad Ali, something that few took seriously. Most still called him Cassius Clay and few saw the name change and a uh, hunger um, as a harbinger of things to come relative to the radicalization and politicization of the black athlete in America. From 1966 to 1980, black society began a societal, political, and popular cultural transition that promised far-reaching consequences both within and beyond the sports arena. For the most part, by the end of 1966, broad segments of, the traditional, of traditional black society, especially black male youth, had figured out that uh, desegregation and the middle-class directed civil rights movement had fallen far short of what the black masses had expected. It was, the, it was this sentiment that was captured and projected by Stokely Carmichael and uh, his call for black power. Popular culture reflected this sea change in conditions and sentiments. The films and movies of the day no longer focused on the responsible, respectable Negro who was striving for acceptance by the mainstream, striving to fit in, to show his America, his America normalcy, that he was qualified. The em emphasis shifted to the strong, combative, militant black man, angry, hostile, determined to kick, stomp, con, karate chop, and if necessary, shoot his way into being respected, if not by the mainstream, uh, at least by uh, his black peers. So there was a tremendous interest in films uh, on the black lawman, or the private eye, or the government agent, still, the main, still in the mainstream, battling for respect uh, in the mainstream by any means necessary. And the names of the movies and the characters' roles reflected the militant integrationist perspective. No more Mr. Tibbs or Walter Younger from Raising in the Sun. Now it was Shaft. Now it was Fred Williams, Hammer. Now it was Slaughter, Jim Brown. Or now it was Action Jackson, Carl Weathers. And this is not to speak of a whole action genre that came to be called black exploitation films, a characterization coined not by whites, but by traditional middle-class black civil rights organizations led by the NAACP and the National Urban League and SCLC that saw themselves being left behind and black youth being led astray. The music of the 1966-1980 of the uh, era also uh, reflected the shift in sentiments as well. James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud. Aretha Franklin, respect. Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Top athletes of the era, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Smith, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, and a, hope of, a host of lesser-known athletes. But hints of yet more change were already well this side of the popular cultural horizon. 
By the mid-1980s, it was very clear that the representational revolts of the 1960s and 70s uh, were, uh, was being replaced by a virulent strain of hedonistic, materialistic, and narcissistic nihilism born of both the successes and failures of the previous two eras. Beginning in the 1980s, masses of people in black society began to conclude not only that we never got what the civil rights movement promised uh, and what black power promised, but that increasingly we could no longer even expect what we got, especially if you were young and black. By the end of the 1980s, hip-hop music was in full swing and expressing this uh, disposition. The movies were no longer focused on the militant activist exploits of strong, determined black men and women played by the likes of Richard Roundtree and Pam Greer or by established, integrated athletes like Jim Brown and Fred Williamson. The movies instead were ghetto-selective, gangster-urban tales uh, of, of the community and institutional uh, collapse, hopelessness, alienation, desperation, material obsession, and violence prevailed. Movies such as Boys in the Hood, Minister Society, Minister Society Two, Hustle and Flow, Players Club, Pimps Up, Holes Down, American Pimp. As to the music, pick your artists: Tupac, Proof, Biggie Smalls, All Dead, All Shot to Death. Or you can go with the living, 50 Cent, Ludacris, Snoop Dogg, Ying Yang, uh, Jay-Z, etc. It goes on and on. The themes and thrust of the music, and in its most popular form, uh, are all essentially the same. And who are the athletes who epitomize the hip-hop era of popular culture? Early on, of course, there was Dennis Rodman, who took what many consumed, considered to be uh, an individualistic hedonism right up to the gates of the asylum. But soon we began to see other athletes, Allen Iverson, uh, Randy Moss, T.O., and others who uh, belong to a class of athletes that are, that are really responding to a popular and youth cultural um, environment. And, and there are hundreds of other athletes who want to be hip-hop, ghetto-centric, and gangster in their image and affiliation, uh, who want to be, as one athlete told me at the combine last year, real. This is, this is not a sidebar or minority disposition. This is increasingly the prevailing athlete cultural mindset, because along with prevailing popular cultural images, there is tremendous peer pressure to conform, just as in the 1960s, suddenly all black athletes were wearing uh, Afro uh, hairstyles and giving at least lip service uh, to um, the militant uh, political disposition that prevailed in black youth culture at the time. The challenge today is that subscription to um, the uh, tenets and goals of ghetto-specific ghetto gangster culture can not only be distracting and disruptive, it can be deadly. Increasing numbers of young athletes are finding themselves in difficult circumstances and situations, principally because of their involvement in this youth cultural situation. Uh, increasingly, athletes reflect the popular and youth cultural influences of their circumstances. Their inclination to continue to identify with and to feel allegiance to their homies uh, is a uh, tremendous liability, a liability that tends to be exacerbated by their commodification, 
They are taken out of the traditional environments, the camps, the clinics, the groups that they travel with all over the country, even these uh, selective enrollment schools, oftentimes do not deal with the life issues that these young people are confronted with. They're more concerned with being on the good side of these young people so that they could manage their lives and their careers right through to the professional contract. This is a devastating uh, fact and feature that we're trying to deal with now at the professional level. This is the source of athletes dancing, demonstrating, hooting and hollering in the end zone, for example, in the NFL when their team is down 35 to 7. It doesn't matter. It's the individual that matters. It is that mindset that is so deeply ensconced. It is that, it is that mindset that is at the heart of the shootings and the killings and so forth uh, that you see. It is that mindset that provokes a commissioner of the NBA to tell his players to disarm, uh, to get rid of the guns. This has gone so far in some instances that some players choose schools based on colors. Red if you're blood, uh, blue if you're a crip. I've gone and lectured at schools where coaches did not know that their locker rooms were ganged up. I lectured at one school last fall where a coach was introducing me to a wide receiver who came in. As soon as I saw him, I knew what the story was. Two buttons, button at the top, he's signing all over the place, and I look in the locker room, and there are a whole bunch of other athletes who are given the exact countersign, which means that this coach has recruited a blood into a Crip locker room. I asked him, Coach, what do you see? Tell me about this kid. Oh, he's great. 6'4", uh, 215 pounds, runs a 4'5", 17 years old. This kid's going to be a great receiver. This kid's going to be, that kid's going to be out of there probably by next year because there's no way he's going to be able to stay in that locker room. The, this coach didn't even know, and I didn't tell him. I mean, why raise issues with, with him that he's not willing to, to deal with? He didn't know that his locker room was ganged up. We have a gang problem at the NFL level. It's coming out of this environment. It's tied directly to these athletes being pulled out of the community, out of the home, being handled and managed, all with the best of intentions, while no one is dealing really with the life issues that are involved. They're simply dealing with a commodity. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not mention the shift from the teacher-mentor-coach to the entrepreneurial-coach, largely prompted by the same forces and dynamics that have resulted in the commodification of the athlete over the course of the collegiate athletic arms race. No one involved in this situation is malicious toward anyone else are the sports involved. Indeed, they are virtually, they are all are virtually dependent upon their client constituency being happy and the institution of sport being healthy. The athlete and his family want the best in training, placement, and career outcome. The camps and trainers want the best outcomes and placement for their athlete clients. It's a very small fraternity and word gets around very, very quickly if you don't get the job done or if you're simply mercenary and exploited. The coaches want the best for their teams. The sponsors, alumni, and boosters want the best for their schools. The schools want the best for their constituents, students, constituencies, students, athletes, alumni, fans. The fans want the best athletes and the most entertaining games. The media want uh, uh, 
satisfied fans, and an attractive product. The regulatory bodies want to see that sports continue to grow and prosper and be healthy and positive. Currently, everyone is riding a wave of money, marketability, and expanding techno technological capacity and social cultural circumstances conducive to, conducive to producing more money and marketability. But who is monitoring and effectively managing the collective impact of all of this upon the institution of collegiate sports? Or perhaps better and more appropriately put, who can monitor and effectively manage this situation? Today, the unintended consequences of individual developments taken collectively threatens the very integrity of sport at the collegiate level, and this is the challenge that confronts us as we approach the end of the first decade of the 21st century. What I fear is that it is going to turn, the worm is going to turn, the situation is going to become explosive when some young person operating under the stress of disappointment, if not humiliation, because a coach has cut him, set him down, took his scholarship or whatever, who has come through one of these programs, who has the proper identification or affiliation with some gang or some uh, other similar type group, who is armed, comes in to an athletic department, some program, some locker room, and goes off. And at that point, everybody's going to go back and try to trace where did the train leave the tracks. And we're going to have to go all the way back to the collegiate athletic arms race and how this thing has expanded to get to it. I've taken too much time. Well, thank you. That's a tremendous uh, introduction to and ground, uh, ground laying for the comments that are to come. Give us great context, and uh, well, I'm sure there will be plenty of questions that will be directed to you as soon as we finish the rest of these. Malcolm Moran is the uh, uh, Knight Chair of Sports and Society, and so we appreciate your being with us. And thank you for having me, and on a number of occasions I've felt compelled to point out that other than applying for the job, I have nothing to do with the fact that a former college basketball writer was given the title that begins with Knight Chair. Uh, uh, this time of the, the football season, a season that never seems to end, I always think about William Shatner. Now, why William Shatner? Does anybody remember the Saturday Night Live skit where Captain Kirk is in front of the convention of Trekkies? And you remember the advice he gave them? Get a life. On signing day, every year, that is what I tell many of my friends, some of whom happen to root for the team that represents the university that employs me. Get a life. What troubles me about the entire process as the technology has changed relates to something that Professor Edwards told me 22 years ago, possibly this week, and I never forgot it. I was covering the Super Bowl for the New York Times, and it was at the end of the availability for the 49ers. And there was a small group of us standing in a hallway. He was speaking to the group, and he said to the group, what you don't understand is the impact of what you write or say on the people that you cover. Now, he was talking about professional athletes that were in their mid-20s to late-30s, not 16- or 17-year-old adolescents. And at first, I have to admit, I disagreed with you, because at the time, I thought, 
you know, we're just us, and everybody understands that coverage is a very imperfect process. But the more I observed and the more I remembered and paid attention, he was absolutely right. And that was pre-internet, pre-blogs, all the things that have happened in the last 22 years and how they relate to the coverage of adolescent athletes. And I know the primary focus is going to be on football and men's basketball, but as I can point out, we've gone well beyond that. What I would point out in terms of the credibility issue, and I won't take much of your time with it because I think it's pretty clear, when you think about National Basketball Association and National Football League operations and the resources they have, the staffing they have, and the fact that general managers, personnel directors, and staff people have careers that depend on getting it right, and they struggle to get it right. I mean, we're in Washington, D.C. I would give you the name Kwame Brown, the first pick in the NBA draft, who did not perform at that level. If we were in New York, if you took the train to Penn Station, went upstairs at a Nick, a Nick game, and mentioned the name Frederick Weiss, see what kind of response you're going to get. And these, in most cases, are athletes that are three to four year old, three to four years older, more mature, more developed, and professional operations have a hard time providing an accurate evaluation. So what does that leave us with when you have bloggers, some of whom happen to be more fan than reporter, making the same kind of observation? As I said, this is not strictly an issue that affects football and and men's basketball. I lived for eight years in Naperville, Illinois, and one day early on, uh, we took our kids to see our favorite babysitter play volleyball, and she told us about a friend of hers, a ninth grader, who probably was only going to be playing volleyball the one year because she needed to concentrate on basketball. And you're really going to enjoy seeing my friend Candace play. Well, one year later, Candace Parker dunked a basketball in a game, and the feeding frenzy was on, and I we had a front row seat for all of it. The pro I was never a math major, but when you have someone identified as the 215th best player in the nation, it doesn't take a math major to figure out that you're on the way to the dehumanization process. I mean, I attended a basketball camp several summers ago, and in the space of about 15 minutes, I watched as a player in his class changed from being somewhere in the teens in terms of the evaluation nationally to the number two player in the country at his, in his class. The reason? Because out of the dozens of players in that camp, he was the only one that was playing defense. There was one player in the camp playing defense, and because of one segment of one game in which he played effectively against a highly rated player, his evaluation went from the teens to number two in the country. And, and I just question the credibility of that. More than 40 years ago, when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was known as Lou Alcindor, and at the time, for his time, he was as scrutinized a high school athlete as there was in the country because of his size, because of his unique talent, and the fact that he happened to be at Power Memorial in New York City. There was never any question that he was going to get a college degree. I mean, there was speculation about what he did for the UCLA program and the number of national championships they might win. But getting a degree was never an issue. Several summers ago, when Greg Oden 
began to become known nationally on the circuit, when he continued to insist that he wanted to go to college, people laughed at him. I mean, that's where we've come in the space of the last four decades. Whichever athlete conceived that awkward moment where you announce your choice of college on national television, what, what do they do? They put on the ball cap. Well, where did that come from? It's the first step to what they hope is the handshake with the commissioner. And that's what the model has become. It has nothing to do with higher education. It's the equivalent of a junior varsity free agent announcement linking themselves to a franchise. In terms of accountability, uh, based on 32 years in the trench uh, before I joined the faculty at Penn State, the major issue that I can cite, that I talk about in a news media ethics class at school, is that when I was working with my teammates at USA Today, if I made a mistake, there was a very specific system in place there that holds me accountable. There's either a correction, if it was a, an extreme case, there could be an editor's note, it would affect my annual evaluation, it, it could, in an extreme case, it could cause a demotion. The problem with new media is there's no such mechanism in place. All you need is a laptop and a really good delete key, and if you make a mistake, it's gone. It never happened. And what troubles me is that all this has to do with adolescents that are learning how to play not only the game, but the recruiting game. That's what troubles me the most. So what I would ask is that as signing day approaches, that everyone take a step back from the water cooler, take a step back from predicting a national championship in 2010 or 2011, and just ask yourselves, if this was your son or your daughter, how would you feel if they were being set up to fail? Next on the agenda is John Bunting, formerly the head football coach for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Tonight I will be traveling uh, to Mobile, Alabama, uh, site of the Senior Bowl. The Senior Bowl is considered by most the best of the best of the college all-star games. I was lucky enough to play in it uh, 35 years ago. The Senior Bowl is also uh, signals in many ways the beginning of scouting for most NFL coaches. Uh, a couple staffs are getting ready for something else uh, right now. This, uh, this process of scouting college football players is a long, grinding, but most focused task, culminating with the NFL draft. It is the number one priority in the beginning of the NFL out of season. The week-long NFL Indianapolis Combine brings the cream of the crop college football players together to be examined in every possible way by all NFL teams. Personnel departments numbering in the 20s, along with the coaches, the general managers, the vice presidents, and sometimes presidents, and even the owners of the NFL teams attend. The scrutiny of the, co of the collegiate player begins in the sophomore year by the scouting services for the NFL in the names of National or Blesto. Yet with all the videotape, all the reports, all the interviews, all the workouts, all the physicals, all the background checks, etc., etc., selecting players for the seven-round NFL draft by the experts is still a very inexact science. Growing up on both sides of Washington, D.C., I signed my letter of intent to attend UNC at a restaurant in Silver Spring, Maryland. My two brothers flanked me in a picture I still have to this day. Uh, beyond my immediate family, 
some of my teammates, coaches at my high school, my high school principal, nobody knew of my decision. When I reported for summer, cap, summer camp as a freshman, I met my freshman teammates for the first time. I never knew how many linebackers or running backs or wide receivers or quarterbacks had been recruited by UNC. I didn't know how many stars had been assigned to these players or where the recruiting class had been ranked by the conference, by region, or in the nation. Since then, the evolution of the recruiting process has changed dramatically with the NCAA manual so large and heavy it could kill your cat if it fell off the refrigerator. I've coached on every level except high school since retirement as a player, but as a head coach at my alma mater these past six years, I've witnessed the birth, the growth, and now the monstrous resources of information as well as disinformation made available to anyone and everyone. My recruitment to UNC began soon into my senior year. I visited five or six schools. One was too cold. One, the students still wore coat and ties. Still don't like them. Uh, and there was no female population. Uh, another was too far, another too close, even though I loved the head coach. UNC got my attention while I watched Gary Williams play against Dean Smith's Tar Heels at Cole Field House. The UNC recruiter heightened my attention with his relentless stream of handwritten notes. I believe most will agree that 16, 17, 18-year-old, and even beyond male or female student-athletes love attention. Those that don't are in the minority. The handwritten note as a recruiting device from qualified coaches has endured the test of time. It is still popular, but it is increasingly taking a back seat to a host of other influences, some inside but most outside. The arms race for facilities, the traditions and projections based on wins and losses and new coaches make a difference. However, the student athlete in today's world is bombarded by the competitive reporter recruiters and other mediums like Facebook and MySpace, all available and all unaccountable, found on the internet. Control or lack of control of the internet is a societal problem, not just an NCAA football or basketball problem. This information is, is disseminated throughout the season of play, and then when the season ends, the second season begins for everyone that wants to make a buck or is starving for information. Remember, this is about the Internet. Anyone can say anything about anyone and not be held accountable, true, false, or indifferent. Now, when players or even some teams have gotten involved in Facebook or MySpace, that has caused problems. I've had parents in my office showing them pictures of their sons doing inappropriate or embarrassing things to themselves, the program, or their family. One can only imagine how many communications take place with student-athlete prospects over these mediums. Temptations abound to try to steer the prospects to one school or another. Once again, what 17- or 18-year-old prospect would not love to hear or see his or her name being associated with this or that school and soon entering the NFL draft as a first, second, or third round draft pick. Think about those perks. Between text messaging and the cell phone and the MySpace Facebook mediums, you wonder how a junior or a senior prospect gets any schoolwork done. 
With the development of local, regional, and national websites, the, the regular season and the second season has taken on a new life, healthy or unhealthy, depending upon your perspective. Can you imagine grown men gathering around a TV monitor to watch a 17-year-old kid put on a hat when declaring his commitment to a university? High five, shouts of glee, and other hysteria takes place not only with those coaches, and I was one of them, but all the dot-coms of the local school receiving the prize, whether it's Tex-Ag or Orange Bloods or the Tar Heel Nation, everyone is dancing in the streets. Every prospect wants to go from a two-star to a three-star or a three to a four, and the hype between prospect coaches and the recruiting reporters is enormous and unrelenting. The surfers and the message boards are dying for information, and the experts are ready to give it. Any information, a commit, a decommit, a soft commit, and information all over the projected prospects map. Interviews before the prospects visits to a campus, and multiple exit interviews upon leaving, you wonder how the prospect tracks all these experts, their loyalties, and the effect it has on his or her recruitment. Final thoughts. Some of these experts on these 16, 17-year-old, or 18-year-old prospective student-athletes I have known. I've been around these so-called experts at high school football games, combines, hour practice sessions, my press conferences, and some of them don't know whether a football is stuffed or pumped. Finally, I'll leave you with this, with this a local article from the Washington Post, uh, written by Les Carpenter. In it, a former Tar Heel football player, friend of mine, and long snapper for the Washington Redskins, was ID'd as the lowest rated player on the John Madden EA Sports video game. A profanity-filled letter followed and was sent to NBC sports analyst John Madden with Ethan Albright's name attached. The news traveled around the internet, and some maybe even believing that the letter to be true. Ethan Albright laughed that off, saying he has better things to do than write a letter by being a father and raising four children. It's just another example of anybody can say anything with no accountability. And what's a 17-year-old supposed to think? Our next uh, speaker is Bobby Burton, who is the chief operator for Rivals.com and uh, had created his own company that Rivals bought out, and uh, now he is with them. So thank you for being with us. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am a, I'm not a scholar about the Knight Commission, but certainly have followed it. I am a uh, former college student athlete. I played tennis for a year. I was laughing because I saw the, the previous uh, the previous panel, and they were talking about how Title IX did not uh, eliminate uh, scholarships for male athletes. I was scheduled to receive a scholarship to Sam Houston State University to play tennis there, and the women or the tennis coach, who happened to be female, came up to me and said, "Sorry, Bobby, we're not going to be able to give you a scholarship because of Title IX." So that's just a pers very personal experience. Now that's been obviously 20 years too since that's happened. Um, at the same time, I think. You know, uh, what the Knight Commission has done overall has been outstanding. I went from uh, that college experience. I transferred to the University of Texas where I worked for the football team for three years. Uh, I then moved on to the University of Houston after graduating. I was a volunteer assistant in the recruiting department there, managed all their videos, that sort of thing. 
from there started the National Recruiting Advisor, which he was so kind to mention. Really, what's started Coach Bunning and, and, and others have talked about is the Internet. And so I wanted to try to explain to a lot of people what and who Rivals.com is. If you all saw the um, paper here that is used to introduce this topic, it basically says an entire industry has sprung up to assist prospects with marketing themselves to schools, assist coaches with recruiting talent. That's not what Rivals.com or Scout.com does. We don't sell our information in that capacity to colleges at all. There are recruiting services out there that will, for $500, try to take advantage of a kid saying, I can help you get a scholarship to John Carroll University or, or where, what have you. The, the problem that, that I have is that there's this misnomer because we cover reporting and we're a professional news organization doing so that we get lopped in to these people that then also post videos online of kids and say, for $500, we'll put it out there and send an email to every college in the country that, that we do that. Um, the other part of this is that the popularity of websites, I'm just quoting verbatim here, the popularity of websites like Rivals.com and Scout.com has prompted the mainstream media to cover the recruitment of prospects more intensely than ever. Uh, Mr. Moran said it better than I could. I think that the NFL draft in college football and basketball recruiting is actually a takeoff on that. It's the, it's the college version of the NFL draft in many, in many ways and shapes and forms, and the fan base sees it that way. Um, and I think that's important to note as well. I think also uh, that, that if you really look at some other aspects of it, we can talk more in detail about that at, at length. But really, I wanted to go over what we do and who we are, because we do play a role in the landscape of college sports. Um, we are a sports media company focusing primarily on college and high school sports and recruiting. We cover college football, college basketball, college baseball. I've got two people at Mo in Mobile already for uh, the NFL draft. Uh, the NBA draft, college football recruiting, college basketball recruiting, high school sports including nationally, including soccer, volleyball, and softball, and others. Um, the sophistication of this organization from a scouting standpoint is actually quite similar to the NFL, and that's what I tried to create, or we tried to create when we did it. Did it. We have more than 25 people nationwide who only work on football recruiting, uh, and we have, I believe, seven uh, in basketball recruiting. I handle the football recruiting aspect of it. Uh, in, ba in, in basketball recruiting, a young man named, or a young man, he's 35 years old, um, named Jerry Meyer, who's the uh, college basketball's all-time assist leader handles our basketball uh, evaluations. To go through this with you, I think it's important that everybody understand that the reason why Rivals.com, I think, is at this table is because we are primarily known as a recruiting website. That's what we get quoted for. That's what we have. Uh, syndicate, we syndicate our content to people like USA Today, uh, like SportsIllustrated.com, like many other, Yahoo, AOL, uh, you name it. We're not like the YouTubes of the world or the MySpaces that are uncontrollable. We are a professional news organization. When somebody makes a mistake, Malcolm, we correct it and we announce it. We have more than 85 employees. We're based in Franklin, Tennessee, more, a staff of more than 300 writers. Um, we make our money, and I think this is important because Mr. Elmore mentioned earlier about business is a driving factor behind everyone here in college athletics. Make our money off of subscriptions, off of advertising, and off of commercial licensing of sales of goods. The popularity of the sites are not unlike what Mr. Bunning said. 
Um, during normal days of the year, we get between 12 and 20 million page views a day on our website. Um, on National Signing Day, last year we received 57 million page views. This year we project that we'll, we will uh, f serve more than 75 million page views. We are the uh, stickiest, is what they call it, website covering college and high school sports on the internet. Shifting gears here and trying to explain the marketplace today. I think it's important that everybody understands I've, I've lived this for 15 years, covering college football recruiting. I have a different take on it than maybe anybody uh, in that regard because I've been doing it for so long and with so many people. I read last year's or, or several years ago's night report and Mr. Elmore, Elmore said, sunlight is the best antiseptic. And I completely and utterly agree with that. I'll tell you what I mean by that. When I, in 1998, I believe, Charles Woodson won the Heisman Trophy. In that year, I was actually calling recruits. I wasn't just the editor. I was calling recruits. And I called James McGriff, a young man out of Palm Bay, Florida. James McGriff told me in an interview that he was going to be the next Charles Woodson at the University of Michigan had told him so. I then called Damian James out of Lafayette, Louisiana. Yeah, I think I'm going to go to Mission, Michigan. They tell me I'm, gonna, I'm, the next, I'm the next Charles Woodson. Called two other kids that same time. I'm like, this is interesting. I mean, I wrote a story and put it on the internet. I got a call from the Michigan, then Michigan recruiting coordinator within 15 minutes saying, what are you doing to us? You're killing us. I'm like, this is what it is. You can't, I mean, I'm, I'm going to report something like this. And, you know, that, that recruiting coordinator has since gone retired. You know, it's just something that, like you had said, people in the past could not, like kids didn't know that there were eight running backs being committed. They would be told they were the only one. Or that, hey, you're our number, you're the only quarterback we're going to take. Um, those things don't happen anymore because of the internet, because sunlight is the best asset. Um, and I think, you know, it also teaches coaches to be more truthful in the process than perhaps those that would like to don't any longer. Um, it's also, in my opinion, the internet has also slowed down the number of violations, major violations in college athletics with a company like Rivals.com reporting on and screening it and, and making sure that, hey, if something's going on, I'll never forget in 1999, a recruit at Mississippi State told me that he had, I go, what did you do on your visit? And he goes, we stayed in the hotel, or in the in the dorm room all week and we, um, smoked. That's all we did. I'm like, and at that time I didn't have a I didn't have a website, so I didn't have a vehicle to put it out there. Mentioned it on a radio show, but it never got picked up. You know, that's something that's very serious to me because as a former student athlete, as Mr. Edwards said, I care about that stuff. I've got two young kids. Last thing, I, another thing, not the last thing, but another thing that we provide is a platform for colleges any college, NAIA, Division Three, Division Two, Division, what have you, to view our video for free on, co on college football and basketball prospects and even some college baseball prospects. There's an article in this, this year's Dallas Morning News on a young man named Sam Acho who committed to, eventually committed to the University of Texas. Um, he basically said that, and his coach said, I sent the film to Rivals.com and I had seven coaches call me the next day. 
This is a young man who's, uh, I believe, Nigerian by descent. His dad's a doctor, moved to Dallas. He would have had the ability to go pay that $500 um, to a recruiting service to get his name out there. With us, they don't have to do that. I can't, I mean, Sam Ocho is just one example of this recent past. There's been hundreds of others that have been found, whether it's a kicker that signs with Ole Miss from California because they were looking for a kicker. It happens all the time. Um, as I look at trends as it relates to today, there are several that I see issues with that I think this panel should take under consideration. Number one is early enrollment. Uh, as Coach will tell you and others, uh, some kids, uh, some student athletes, I, I use their kids because they're still seven, 16, 17, 18 years old, are being asked to enroll earlier in colleges, midterm graduates. I think that while all fine and good, that go, may go against what this commission and the greater good of what college athletics wants to occur. It's perfectly normal. Another student can do it, but one, one school may do it and use it as a reason to go there as opposed to go somewhere else. Certainly an institutional issue, something to think about. User-generated content, which is the MySpace, Facebook, and um, YouTube generation. MySpace, uh, a lot of people will know this in, in here, University of Kentucky was turned themselves in because one of their recruits had a MySpace page that then allowed um, contact with recruits from their boosters. They didn't know if they were their boosters, but they thought it might be. So University of Kentucky, being very aware of it, went and did that. Everybody from high school has a MySpace page right now. No question. Rivals.com would never allow, as a professional news organization, that interaction to happen without us being the arbiter of it in between it. I want you to also, um, this is not a, a plug for YouTube, but how young does this recruiting niche go or how young do people want to be recognized? There's a six-year-old on YouTube right now that you can go look up named Marquise Walker. His videos have more than 100,000 views across the country. Um, if my six-year-old can bounce a basketball like that, I might put it up for my own family and friends, but his, his um, guardians have taken him on, on themselves to upload it themselves. It, it really has gotten to a level that's, that's quite scary at some level. Third thing, um, announcements on television and elsewhere. Um, it's not <laughs> to be in a Silver Spring, Maryland restaurant. But, um, but the, the issue here I have with it is, is twofold. When I first came into this and, and reported on it, what was happening was a, a young man would say, I want to go to my high school and announce for LSU. I said, okay, I'll be there. We'll cover the press conference. Well, ultimately, you know, I never thought to say, I'm going there to cover it. I never thought nobody that in right-minded would say, well, you know what, don't announce that decision until you, you talk to, uh, until you announce it at the press conference. What actually has happened is that now the people that put on the press conferences are saying, you know what, don't tell the University of North Carolina that you're going to LSU. Make them find out the same time everybody else finds out. So what you have is you have these organizations, and, and ESPNU is certainly one of them. Others have done it too. Uh, it's not something that Rivals.com has ever done. Puts on these press conferences. They are actually telling young men in certain instances not to tell the coaches that are recruiting them who they're going to school, even if they've already decided. And this could be a week out, and they've already decided. And so 
they're teaching these young men to be deceptive in that practice. Oh, they'll keep stringing Coach Bunning along. They'll string on an assistant coach who doesn't see his family enough as it is. And I think that's a real issue that, you know, needs to be discussed because if – and I don't know how you – I don't know how you, you know, get around it, but it's very, very serious in my opinion. Um, you have guys that actually start – because they, they have these football games that they, they are a part of. They start recruiting players to announce at their game nine months previous to that. I mean, I can't tell you if, if a young man wants to make a decision early, they're saying no, and that, that causes – Say, say it causes Virginia Tech to not be able to go on to their next quarterback or their next wide receiver, the next whomever. Um, so I, I think that's something that needs to be discussed. And I think the other thing that, that really, two other things, use of correspondence courses. And, uh, you know, the NCAA did a great job with their, I don't know if great's the right word, but did a, it took a step in the right direction with the diploma mills, so to speak. I think it was an excellent job. I think the next thing that I'm seeing, and this is just through anecdotal evidence, is that um, I see people, uh, young men, getting into college who I've spoken with their high school coach, like Coach McGregor, who, who have told me not two months before, there's no way he can get into college. There's no way. And all of a sudden, he maybe takes, you know, 16 or 15 or five classes in a three-month window. Something that maybe the NCAA could do with, with really governing that, but it's all brought about uh, from recruiting. Last thing is, is something that needs to be discussed is should we have two national signing days for football or just one for basketball or a multitude of those, uh, any kind of mixture of that. I think that, um, you know, my problem with basketball recruiting, and speaking frankly, is that it's been taken out of the hands of the high school coach, uh, by and large. The high school football coach unlike basketball, still has a ton to say about the recruiting process, without question. It's the first per one of the first people he turns, a player turns to, and that's because there's one signing period, and it's after the young man's senior season. With basketball, there are all kinds of other people involved in that decision. And I think that if you waited until after a senior season, which is natural, to sign a player, it might make more sense. But because it's been moved up into the summer and summer basketball, has been so interesting to everybody, it's pushed up that process and taken it, in my opinion, out of the hands of high school football coaches. College football recruiting, on the other hand, is still primarily in, in there. Coach McGregor, how many, I mean, he will host over probably 100 colleges at his high school. I guarantee you the basketball, while DeMath is well known for that, you take a basketball prospect, he may not get more than five to ten people at his school looking at players because he just doesn't need to. You can see them all at their high school, at their, uh, in their uh, AAU games or AAU-like games. Um, you uh, I, that, that would be yeah. it. I apologize. Very passionate about this. But Thank you. Thank you very much. You kind of introduced Bill McGregor, who has uh, been a high head high school football coach for 25 years at uh, DeMatha Catholic High School and has won High School Coach of the Year honors, and we're pleased to have you with us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, first, of all, first, first of all, it's really a great honor, a great privilege to, to be here uh, this, this, this morning. I want to thank Amy for asking me, and it's uh, a tremendous opportunity to go before the Knight Commission and maybe share some ideas. Uh, I, I have been the head football coach at DeMatha High School for 25 years. Uh, during those 25 years, we've had some 
uh, great teams. I think we've won uh, 15 co uh, conference championships. We've had seven teams that have been undefeated, eight teams ranked number one in the Washington, D.C. area, seven teams ranked number one in the state of Maryland, uh, eight teams ranked in the USA Today Top 25. Uh, in 1990, we had 16 boys sign Division 1A or 1AA full football scholarships. Uh, we led the whole country. We had a picture in the front page of the USA Today newspaper. In 2004, we had 17 boys sign Division 1A or 1AA full football scholarships. Uh, every year in between, we had 10 or more sign uh, you know, full scholarships. Uh, over the course of time, I've had over 300 boys uh, sign uh, full NCAA football scholarships. Over 300 boys sign uh, full NCAA uh, football scholarships. Uh, I also do uh, work with the NFL in terms of the, uh, being the regional director for their junior player developmental program and their high school player developmental program. Uh, we, we've taken that program here in the Washington, D.C. area from 1 to 24 with the HSPD and uh, from one, to, one site to uh, 20, 25 in the, uh, in the JPD programs. But what I'm finding more and more, and I think one of the things that's kind of disturbing as, as, as a high school football coach who's really involved basically in two seasons, I see my number one season as me being a, a high school football coach and trying to produce the finest high school football team I possibly can. And all my efforts and all my energies go towards that, and we want to put a, a really fine product on the field for the boys and for the, for the school and, and, and do all the things necessary to, to really have an outstanding football program. Then I look at my second season, and my second season is the recruiting season, where I, where I really take a great deal of pride in trying to help my boys get into college, whether it be Division 1A, Division 1AA, Division 2, or Division 3. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the whole second season now that I have seen change, I think, drastically over the course of time. Um, what I think is really happening more and more, uh, in the old days, I could control the recruiting. I'd have the, the, the college coach come into my office, I'd sit there and I would not give out the home phone number, I would not give out the home address, would not give out the, uh, the email or anything like that. All, all, all the correspondence came through DeMatha and I would be able to sit there and and uh, talk with the college coach and have the boy talk with the college coach or bring the, bring the parents, come, have the parents come in now and talk with the college coach and just spend time basically getting to know him and do it, doing a more one-on-one -on -one type of situation. Uh, now, with the, uh, with the situation in terms of the internet and the, uh, and the, and the cell phones and the text messages, messages and things like that, the whole recruitment process has totally changed. Uh, you know, now, right now, for, for instance, there's unlimited text messages that can go on back and forth between a recruiter and between a, a prospective student athlete, which I, I, I just find almost ludicrous in terms of where a college recruiter can only have maybe so many phone calls, okay, but unlimited text messages. And the text messages come at, I think, some of the most inappropriate times. You, you have a boy sitting in class, and the next thing you know, uh, he's being distracted because he's getting a text message from a college recruiter. Or a boy taking a, college, a high school examination, and all of a sudden he's being distracted because here comes a text message from the, from the high school recruiter. 
And again, you know, I, I think what's really happening is because of the text message situation, I think a lot of people are just skirting the rule and, and finding ways to make contact with the boys that, that are f falling under a, a guise of something being legal. But if you take a look at it as their, as their high school coach, something that you really don't want to have happening. And I, I think uh, it's something maybe that, that, that should be taken a look at. Uh, another area that uh, I think that, that has really grown out of proportion are the number of recruiting services. Uh, first off, you know, as the high school football coach, uh, you get the phone call from, from the recruiting service. Can I find out about your boy? And then from there, the next thing they want is the, is the boy's home phone number, or the parent's phone number. So again, now the text messages begin and the, uh, and, and the phone calls begin. The next thing you, you look on the internet and you see the boy has a rating. It's a one rating or a two rating or a three rating. You know, how did he ever get this rating? I'm sure there's, there's not enough film being given out to the, the uh, recruiting services for someone to, be, to have a five rating or a four rating or a three rating. Again, which I find almost ridiculous. Then depending on where a boy signs, his rating may change. Go from a five to a four to a three to a two. Um, and again, with the, with the recruiting services, there's basically unlimited contacts for the boys where, uh, where again, he can be bothered at any time during the day or during the night uh, by the recruiting service and, and someone has something to say to him in terms of where he's going to school and why he's going to school and things along those lines. I think other areas that, that have really changed, I think, drastically are, are these combines that now have sprung up. Uh, you know, there, there are parents driving four and five hours to just to take their son to a combine because they feel if they don't take him to the combine, they have to keep, you know, they're, they're falling behind the eight bar and not keeping up with the Joneses. And all of a sudden, a boy goes to that combine after sitting in a car for four or five hours and runs a 485. And next thing you know, his stock has fallen before he has even played a dime his senior year. And, uh, you know, he should be a 46 or a 465. And nobody knows who, who the timer is or who the publisher is or, 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 or anything along those lines. So basically, I think one of the things that's happened is be, through the combines and through the recruiting services, through the unlimited that uh, one of the things that's happening is, is that we are losing control of the recruiting process. And, uh, and I think it's getting out of hand. You know, one of the things I would, I would be in favor of, even in football, is maybe a, 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 a double signing period like they have in basketball. And I think this could take some pressure off the kids in terms of, uh, you know, where, where one boy puts on one hat and all of a sudden he has to take off that hat and put on another hat to, to make him popular or make him uh, someone special with, 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 with his peers. Uh, we even had a situation here in the state of Maryland where, where a recruit invited a head coach of a major university, his wife, okay, to, to his formal announcement of, of, of his signing. And he showed up that day with a tie on and with a, uh, with, with a, with a blazer of the school colors. And then all of a sudden, right before, right before his, uh, his, his signing, or right before his, his announcement of his signing, he switches on a different hat and announced that he was not going to that school, he was going to a different school. So can you imagine the embarrassment of that head coach and his poor wife and, uh, and, and that whole situation? But I think basically what's happening is, you know, <laughs> recruiting is, is, is getting too outrageous, and I think there should be limits in terms of, you know, uh, what, what a boy can do and what he can't do. You know, right now I have a boy, uh, Kenny Tate, and Kenny's rated as the seventh best junior in the country. 
who in the world ever designated him as the seventh best junior in the country? You know, and, and now, Kenny, does he have to live up to that reputation? Does he have to pretend like he is the seventh best junior in the country? You know, what, what happens when he drops a pass next year? What happens when he doesn't make a 40-yard touchdown run in every ball game? And again, so I, th I think what's happening is the pressure is unduly uh, being transferred to the boys in a situation where they, they don't need it. And I would be entirely in favor of uh, you know, backing things off and letting the boy just be a high school student athlete where he has to go to class, where he doesn't have the text messages, messages where he doesn't have the ratings and doesn't have all the extras that has to go with recruiting nowadays. Next on the agenda is Andrew Crummy, who is in his fourth year at the University of Maryland at College Park. He is a junior offensive lineman on the Terrapins football team. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting hearing the, the previous people talk about, um, you know, their issues. And, and a lot of the same issues it really apply to my experience. Um, that's what I'm going to talk about is my experience um, when I was getting recruited and the, the impact and the issues that I felt um, with the media um, and on my recruiting and how uh, I approached it and how it still in some ways affects me today. Um, I come from a smaller school in Ohio, Northwest Ohio, not a, an institution in, in high school football as DeMatha. Um, you know, I, I came from a program where I was the only guy in my senior year who was uh, offered a full scholarship to play football. Um, so the, the, the level of expertise on mentoring um, when it comes to how to handle the recruiting process wasn't there as it opposed would be in a school like DeMath or other schools like that. Um, so when, <clears throat> when I approached uh, recruiting, when I started getting recruited, you know, my first offers and my first contact by media uh, was at the end of my junior year. Um, nothing really before that junior year. Uh, the summer going into my senior year, you know, attended camps, did the whole gamut of attending camps, going to, to visit schools uh, after a one-day camp. Um, getting calls from uh, organizations such as Rivals and other things like that, other publications, you know, asking my, uh, to explain how I felt about the place, did I like it, did I get an offer, you know, they, you know, they get the initial call where they want you to list your offers, your height, weight, numbers, 40, you know, what's your bench, your squat, your clean, you know, they want the numbers. And that's kind of your initial uh, exposure to the media. And as you go along in the summer, um, as you, as you visit these camps, they want to know if you got off. They want to know how you did, um, how other how other how other prospects did at the camp. You know, how how are the other offensive linemen? What they do? Do they look good? Blah blah blah, uh, etc. Um, you know, and that and that kind of that kind of uh, introduction into the media kind of really uh, blossoms when you get into the, the season. When you take your first official visit, which I did to Purdue, um, you know, immediately after. The visit, you get uh, bombarded by calls. Did you did you commit? Did you like it? Can you can you tell us about the school? And the first one's all right. And when you get to the second uh, visit, now they want you to uh, compare the two. What'd you like about this? What'd you do, what'd you dislike about that? And as a, as a student, as a high school student who's not um, been exposed to you know media contacts before, it's very hard for um, to watch your words, understand that you don't have to really say everything. That you, you're you're exposed to a a whole other world which you're not prepared for yet, which college does a good job of preparing you for. Um, and some of the calls, just talk about the, the type of calls and what would happen during a call, um, especially during, you know, after in the fall, during your senior season when you're doing the recruiting, they want you to, um, first of all, narrow your list of schools. 
Um, usually, the typical thing is, you know, what's your top five schools? Well, you know, I always advise my coach to not burn bridges and, and, and really keep an open mind when it comes to recruiting and just take in everything and, and, feel, and go with what feels right. And so to be asked to rank my top five schools, you know, it's kind of difficult because you don't want to, um, you know, tell anyone off. You don't want a school that would have been six, but you didn't, you didn't mention them to all of a sudden say, oh, well, what about us? You know, well, you just forget about us. We're not, you're not interested in this anymore. And that's actually been a comment that uh, other players on my team have made and that I've actually experienced a, a school calling up and saying, you know, I see we're not in your top five. Was, you, know, I, I, you know, I misspoke. I wish I hadn't answered the question because it put me in an awkward position. Um, and so, you know, other than, uh, you know, the, the top five schools and stuff like that, the calls were pretty benign. You know, it's you know, how would you like the school and stuff like that. Um, now my exposure to media was, was rivals. That was, you know, that was my exposure. I didn't really have exposure to other media outlets. So that's what, that's kind of what I'll talk about. Um, the use of stars for a player and the effect it has on a player itself. You know, I look at it, you know, I got, I got my ranking. I have no idea, probably at the end of the junior year, probably early summer. And you don't know what a three star really means. You don't know what, you know, 32 or 36, you know, guard in the nation really means. And it's almost a, you know, it's, it's a sign to you, so you accept it, you take it, oh, well, I'm a three-star recruit, okay. So I go online, look at what a three-star recruit is, and then I see these guys are four-star recruits, and oh, well, I guess I'm not as good as that guy, and obviously not as good as a five-star recruit. And you go to these camps, you go to any camp, or any time where you're around your peers, which are other prospects, you, you almost take an identity with that number. So for instance, my very first camp you go to, you're standing in line to run your 40. Well... You know, you're just casually talking to everyone, other, but the, the conversation centers around what's your star, or your four-star, oh, you're blah, 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 oh, you're a four-star recruit, okay, nice to meet you, you're, you're obviously better than me, and that's that kind of mindset. And and then it goes, the next conversation is your numbers. It goes from, you know, I'm a, I'm a, so, I'm a such, such a star to this is my 40 time, this is my, you know, this is my bench press, this is the numbers that rivals makes important when they first call you. The, the first context of them is saying, well, these numbers are important. That's what we want to know. So you think, as a, as a prospect, those are the numbers that matter. So you, you, you know, regurgitate those numbers. The first thing you say is, oh, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I have a, you know, a 5140 or something like that. And you, you get respect from your peers based on your rating, how fast you are, and, and as I said, not on your playing ability. Now, you're ranked, but you know, no one, none of these other people have seen you play. You, you can't see this guy play, and no one's seen you play yet. But they, they, they know based on the numbers what your rating is, and that's kind of a cultural thing when it comes to prospects in general and their peers. Is that's how we see each other during the recruiting process because we're competing with each other for for the offers. We're um, like each other because we're doing the exact same thing, and it, it kind of has a little issue of separation and, and distinction. We use the numbers to compare and, and rate and distinguish each other from uh, each other from ourselves. Um, I think it's interesting is the, also the message boards that you know are on rivals and are on other sites and these things and the message boards have to be taken with a grain of salt you know you have to understand uh, that you know these are people who can post anything they want like the, we, the point that's been made quite a bit is that the internet has no accountability and people post things on the message board about high school prospects, about college prospects. 
And these message boards can be very viral. I mean, they can, I mean, people can say some very, you know, hurtful things on these message boards. Thank God I escaped that, I think. Not that I've, I've found, but, um, you know, people are, are kids, or 17, 18-year-old kids are, are bashed on these sites uh, because they're not high enough star. Like, oh, why this kid get an offer? He's only a three-star. You know, who, who's this kid? You know, why, why aren't we taking the four-star kid? What, when are we going to get the four-star kid? Why is he committed yet? And, it's, and that's where it's centered around, and, you know, my father and myself, when, when you're concerned about your own recruiting, and media takes the center stage, and that's where you go to find the information, just like Coach Bunning said, you did, he didn't know who, was, who had committed, who was going to, I knew everything. You know, I knew we had a five-star five recruit, we had a four-star recruit, I knew that we had five offensive linemen coming in to Maryland, I knew everything about the recruiting class and the, and the alleged talent of this recruiting class. And even before that, leading up to other schools, I knew everything that was going on. And you, you, you learn that through rivals, and you find that information through rivals. And then the message boards, um, you know, one thing that recruits should stay away from because it, it is no bearing on where you're at, no bearing on recruiting. But as people commenting on your recruiting, they have no idea. And there's, there's comments and, and, and things like that. And it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a bad way for recruits to get information. But I'll tell you right now, recruits do use it because we want to know, uh, we want to know what's being said about us. We're, we're, high, we're high school kids. We don't understand the nature of the media at that point. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an issue that I see. Um, yeah, and, and uh, you know, the, the impact on the players, just to finish up that thought is, you know, the, the impact of what is said on those message boards was said by uh, the recruiting service, that was said um, by articles written about you is very impactful on players. Players do read it. P players do take it to heart. They almost accept sometimes the identity that is given to them by someone else. And that's, and that's, and that's sad. Um, other than that, I think that's inclusion. Oh, and I wanted to finish up with um, just discussing that the effect that the mediation has on the, the prospects and the recruiting process doesn't end when you sign the national letter of intent. You know, it's one of those things where when you get into college, when you show up the first day, like he said he didn't know anyone, I, we knew everyone. So when we show up the first day of, of camp or the first day of school, we knew everyone. I knew everyone's name already without even meeting them. And all of a sudden there was a hierarchy of who's the better player because of the rating. And who's, who's, who's not as good as because of the rating. That's going in, that's already established before in the first, you can put the pads on for the first time. It's already established who's the better player. And the media, the first day of media day, gravitates to the, the four-star and the five-star players. And it's, it's one of the things that, that pans out over your career because the better player obviously plays, regardless of what your, if your star rating was. But in the beginning, and even today when you're hosting recruits, and that's something that most any college uh, athlete can attest to, you know, hosting recruits, one of the things is, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hang out with a kid, and then some random person will come up and know all about the kid. This is a college student who knows all about this kid, and will, t and will give you the whole history. I, you know, I was assigned the kid. I don't know much about him other than his name I'm talking to. Him. This kid knows the whole history, because the kid, this other college student, reads rivals. So he knows how great a kid this is, and, and it's, and it's their celebrities, uh, prospects are celebrities on campus, before we get there and when we get there based on your hype or your or your number assigned to you through rivals. So that's thank you. Thank you. That's informative. And thank all of you for your comments. And uh, now if uh, the commission has questions, then we'll begin that process. We 
I have about 35, 40 minutes to do that. Okay, go ahead. Well, I, I just want to say I appreciate the, the context which was laid out here, and it sort of flowed just about perfectly uh, from uh, Professor Edwards to uh, our, our current student here. And, 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 and I can get a, a great perspective on, on this, the complexity of the issue from this conversation. Um, there, there are a lot of things I wanted to ask about, but I'll just pick one, and that has to do with, with the, the information that is obtained by the recruiting services, whether it's rival or scout or whoever it might be. Uh, how valid is that information? How, how, do you, how is it obtained, and then how is it then turned into a rating? Yeah, um, like I said, uh, first of all, uh, I think that the best way to put it and how it's obtained is we have uh, 20 plus full-time staff, that, that's their job. Uh, we have a video department, that, that's their job to get video. And we have more than two, more, video of more than 2,500 high school senior football prospects this year, more than 350 basketball prospects this year. Um, and then it's our job to take that information and watch the video, look at it, and go from there. I think that, and that comes in, it may come in in the spring after their junior year, or it may come in during this, their senior year, or even after their senior year is over. Um, we get it from coaches like Coach McGregor and others. Um, and so that's how the, the information is gathered and disseminated. I lead an effort of that, of that uh, process. The rating, I mean, the point is a five-star, four-star, three-star. You, you've looked at uh, the films, and you've got some guidelines, and so you can not only rate them with stars, but you can determine across the country. I mean, 2,500, perhaps that's all the guards included in the country, and so you're number 257. But my point is, how, do, how, do, how why should a student or a parent take that seriously? It obviously, it's clear that they do, but why, why should they take that seriously? Maybe it's, it's our role to try to clarify how seriously these, these numbers and these data should be taken. I think, I think that's a fair question. I think that, uh, as Coach Bunning mentioned, if, if, or and even Malcolm Moran, you're going to miss on players and where you rank them. Um, that education process can certainly take place. Um, I think that from my vantage point, um, the, you know, we do as good a job and we spend as, as much as we can in resources to come up with the best rankings possible. Our number one basketball player was Greg Oden. Our number two basketball player was Kevin Durant this past year. It has gotten better. We have gotten better as an organization because of trial and error, because of overtime. Our top football player this year was Percy Harvin, who led Florida in, in uh, receptions in the national championship game. Other people had other people the number one players. How do you rank the top 25, the top 30 prospects, and four-star, three-star, two-star? It's a, it's a methodology we use and we cling to and, and try to improve it every year. I, let me just push this a little further. I, I find this um, uh, somewhat puzzling as to the particular criteria that you use and the basis for the comparisons. Let me change to another one. If you're a university president who asks the institution to enroll, as we did at Michigan State, a large number of National Merit Scholars, 
we look at their academic records, their performance on the scores, we have a visible, transparent system of measurement. So we know, at least on the back track record, what, you know, how he made that judgment. And I'm curious, I mean, you said you looked at film, but you must have other sets of criteria that you use which are reasonably comparable across the board. And I'm, I'm just curious of what that is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Jack? If I could just add one thing to, to uh, Cliff's point. After you admit them, you have the opportunity then to determine how well they perform over the course of four to six years. And you can validate the judgments that you use in terms of your admissions criteria. I'd just be curious as to the methodologies that you use at Rivals. Do you go back and look at performance over the course of someone's, someone's career? Absolutely. Um, to your point, yeah, they're, they're, they're not as transparent as a 4.0 GPA. I mean, football is not a science. It's an art. I know that it's hard for some people to use football and art in the same term, but that's what it is. I mean, it's not hard and fast. Um, our methodology is, is printed and posted on our website, available to, for all to see. Um, so there is transparency there about why, where, how, all of those things. To your point, um, yeah, we do go back and look. For instance, our, our top three recruiting classes from uh, 2003, which would be this year's 2007 National Championship class, were Florida, Ohio State, and Southern Cal. Just so happens two of them play for a national championship, the other one won a Rose Bowl. I mean, is recruiting exact? Is the NFL draft exact? Absolutely not. And I would not be the person here to tell you that it is so. But I can tell you that there are some, there is some validity and some uh, looks that, that say there is corresponding or correspondence. And we do go back and look at it. We've hired some people to help us do that. Well, I have the floor. Let me, uh, I want to go back to, um, I guess, uh, Coach Bunting. Um, I was struck by the comment of the, and link it up with an earlier comment by Mr. Edwards. Uh, I was struck by the conversion of, from teacher-mentor coach to an entrepreneurial coach. And um, you have a reputation, I think, well-deserved as a coach when you were at North Carolina of having a very strong commitment to the academic dimension of your players. And um, I would guess also that you were a particular uh, teacher-mentor teacher coach rather than an entrepreneurial coach. Um, I wonder to what extent, in your judgment, that kind of an emphasis is eroded by the, and your ability to deal with the life needs that Mr. Edwards was talking about, to what extent is that being eroded by the increasing commercialization of the entire process of college athletics? Well, I think it's, once again, as I entered in 2001 as head coach, I've seen it change, I've seen it spiral. Uh, in my opinion, it's close to getting out of control. Uh, the uh, efforts to uh, recruit players uh, with GPAs, with uh, character, um, you know, we're all subject to all this, this media hype, all this hysterical, uh, you know, fan-based boosters. Did this guy have a two-star? Why is Bunning recruiting that guy? Well, the guy was in our football camp. We have, we believe he has great character. 
we believe he has a tremendous upside. Uh, we, we know a lot about him. Uh, the year that we recruited, uh, uh, I think, 21 of our 25 commitments and signees were out of our camp system. Uh, we felt really good about that. And, and those, those kids are doing terrifically well in school, being productive, and becoming good football players. But, um, you know, listen to Dr. Edwards talk again about uh, all, this, all these things relative to the locker room. And I, I took a note on the, you know, the, the colors and uh, how he may have buttoned his shirt. Uh, those things were constantly on my mind and constantly reminded, reminded me. And I, and I get into a team meeting session and talk about, you know, how many people own a gun in this room. And, you know, of course, I know I've got some hunters. And coming from North Carolina, but how many guys have a you know? How many people even know the gun rules of, of the state of North Carolina? All those things uh, are, are real concerns, and, and the the objectivity of, of, of the student athlete coming in to a university now, I think, has changed dramatically. Even over the course of the six years I was at UNC, dramatically about what they're there for, and I think it's getting scary. I, um, as, a, as a father of a 16-year-old, and I know a little bit about recruiting, haven't been recruited myself, uh, you know, and my 16-year-old is a pretty good basketball player. He will never show up on Rivals.com. And part of the reason he goes to an academic institution, a high school that, you know, is way beyond any of the schools that most of these kids go to in, in many respects. And don't write that down, Bob. He still can't be on Rivals.com. I'm just making sure. Um, but, but recognizing the problems that parents have um, with the viral aspect of this, as Andrew eloquently put it, uh, that parents have, that teachers and others have, with this being almost a runaway train and the impact on these young people. Um, you know, I'm, I'd like to ask you first, and then, you know, maybe Dr. Edwards, uh, Malcolm Moran, to, to kind of chime in, considering and placing everything in context with regard to social impact and, and the impact of all of this on young men from various socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, understanding the result of this, uh, and sure it's not intended. I mean, you're sure, I'm sure you're putting out a, a product that you think people want, and you know, it's about uh, business. But in the end, you know, understanding the impact of this and seeing the, the, the negatives from it, do you feel any responsibility as a professional journalist? Is there any way you can mitigate the impact of this on the basis of how you present the information, um, you know, any disclaimers that you can put out there so that people can't blog and do things. I mean, even people in my industry, and for, for purposes of disclaimer, for those of you who don't know, I do work for ESPN. And I don't know if you've ever listened to me. Uh, quite honestly, I will never talk about high school players. Never. And for that very reason. Uh, the one thing that I have mentioned to point up the uh, uh, you know, how, how crazy that business can be. I, I remember there was a period of time when LeBron James was rated the number one shooting guard. And who was the number two shooting guard for all you people in this local area? Mike Jones from University of Maryland. Now, Michael's not a bad basketball player, but to put him in LeBron James one and two, I mean, and most people had it that way. There's an absurdity to it. But do you feel any responsibility to be able to try to use your your um, a position, I should say, your station, to be able to try to mitigate this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely I do. And I think my, my company does. I mean, we have, I mean, to give you an example, we have something we call junior days where we go to high schools 
around the country, and we will actually invite young men from anywhere within an hour's driving distance. And what we do is we have a seasoned speaker come up with NCA rules and say, this is what you need to do to take the test. I mean, we, we have peer counseling not only with the kids, but we invite their parents to these things. Last year, over 2,500 young men attended, uh, and, not, and that doesn't include their parents. Um, and so we do feel an obligation to make sure that but, they But I'm talking that. more about the impact of the rankings. Is there a way to just highlight terrific high school players and not assign a number to them? Again, a commoditization of it, to, to be able to almost reduce them the numbers, and that's where you have these problems. And you got fans who take it a next step, and it gets back to these kids in their communities, as the stories have been told out here. And the impact is, is certainly detrimental, and certainly in many cases can be tragic. Yeah, I think that ranking of prospects or ranking of college athletes, it, it occurs, I mean, Rivals isn't the only one. I mean, there's ESPN. I, know that. I mean, I think that ranking is something that is, is valuable to a reader. Um, I think that for comparison's sake, they want to know as a reader, and they have a right to know as a reader, where if you have a, an opinion and you want to voice it, that you are given that, that, uh, that way. So do I think rankings are necessarily great? No. Do I think they're bad? No. I think they are what they are, and it, it's a, it's part of what we do. But but do you explain the fact? Okay, you rank one to two hundred fifty. What's the difference between one and fifty? What's the difference between fifty and two hundred? How much we difference? Do, uh, we is literally it? do. I mean, you, it's it's available on our website. I mean, you can go down about you know what we look for in guards as versus, versus tackles, and and all those sorts of things. Oh, and we God. do. Hey, are we are we perfect again though? I mean, nobody, I would be lying to say so. Dr. Edwards, so. why don't you respond to that, and then let's go. I think Mountain we need also like you. One, one, uh, one of the problems, this whole process, is that characteristic of an arms race in any realm, nobody wants to be the first to disarm. If you don't rank them, another thing comes out, another service comes out and does rank them, and that is where everybody goes. Why? Because it's simple. It's right there. It's sound bite. Hey, you can look at this guy. And what does it tell you about where, what that kid can do? It tells you very little unless you get into the specific situation he's going into. I've seen middle class, well-trained, highly uh, motivated educationally, academically, kids come into a situation. And the next thing you know, in a very short period of time, they're walking around with their pants halfway their butt. They're giving all kind of signs. They're talking all kind of trash and dropping in bombs on folks like they came from the, the heart of the hood. Today, there is a situation going on, and this is what you have to understand, where it is not just an issue of academic motivation and so forth and so on. In there, in there are instances that are becoming prevalent where to be academic motiv academically motivated, to be serious about going to class, is to be anti-masculine. And so you look at, and, and again, I'll, I'll show this. It, it just blows me away. I was director of parks for, uh, like, as I stated, uh, from 2000 to 2000 through 2003. They put out a, um, these are the valedictorians. A hundred and a hundred and a uh, hundred and one hundred valedictorians from the Bay Area. The thing that comes out is that they are 85% female and about 90% Asian. 
I found a, a, a group of, uh, of, of males uh, in here, and it is characteristic of the thing. Jason Zhao, Brian Han, Bo He, Kevin Jung, Anu Kansara, all Asians. Not one black person. About nine whites, about three of them women, and then Oakland, which produced Bill Russell, Joe Morgan, Jason Kidd, Ricky Henderson, Frank Robinson, Veda Pinson. They put out the 110 homicides for 2002. Here, 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 here's, here, here's where the black people are. What I'm saying is that there has evolved a culture that makes this process that everybody admits is out of hand. And it's not that anybody's trying to be malicious or do something wrong or shaft somebody. In pursuing their own interest without an eye to the interest of the overall institution and where it's going, and the kids. The kids have been commodified. They're coming out of an environment increasingly that determines what they bring to the scene irrespective of the particulars. The number one question that is being asked at the combine for the last three years, and I've seen this change over 21 years for the NFL, tell me about his character. And it's to the point now that they are actually afraid of the kids. California just passed a law, and you should read this because it's a, a mind-boggler. Senate Bill, Assembly Bill 2165 which states that any kid that's convicted of a felony is ineligible to participate in collegiate athletics in California at a junior college, community college, a state university, or any university. And among the things that they can be, that, that they are particularly paying attention to, aside from murder, rape, kidnapping, burglary, assault on a police officer, armed assault, robbery, is assault on a sports official. That's specifically in the law. They are afraid of the kids. And so when, 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 when you get to the point where you're not only afraid to deal with life skills and the problems that these kids have coming out of this kind of environment, and once they get to the campus, it is those kids, the great athletes, that set the tone for everybody else. You're not just talking about a situation where these kids may become a problem themselves, but everybody gathers around them because they're great athletes. You're not just talking about Ludacris and Snoop Dogg, you're talking about Eminem and White Chocolate and, and, and some of these other kids who are walking around, you know, out of middle class white suburban communities with their pants halfway and talking like they were raised in the hood, young white kids. I talked to a, a, a team about three years ago. This is how, long, how far behind we are. 
about three years ago, where the coach wanted to deal with these end bombs that these black kids are dropping on each other in the locker room. Dropping end bombs on each other in the locker room. He said, hey, we're putting a fence down in the middle of our locker room because if he can do it and he can do it, but if he does it, we have a race issue because he's white. We got a major issue here. And at the end of the day, it's going to be us out there as a team knowing that this guy got my back and I, you know, we, we, we eat together, we lose together, we win together, but we, if we're dropping end bombs on each other and the black kids sit up and say, coach, you're a racist. You're saying that I can't express myself. And the coach says, anybody else in here think like that? White kid stood up and said, coach, you are a racist. That's his culture. It is so far out of hand that to talk about the measurables, to talk about the rankings and the ratings, which have, may have absolutely nothing to do with when you get that kid in that particular locker room with that particular group and he has to produce. I don't care what the ratings said he was. You satisfy your boosters, you satisfy your fans, you satisfy your public, you get uh, all kind of ratings. Oh, you had the best incoming class, recruitment class of 2007. And then you put these guys on the field in a particular environment, and you have major problems. And I'm going to say it, and this last thing I've got to say, at least part of the problem, and something that I discussed with Paul Tagliabue right after Bill Walsh and I put together this initial minority coaches outreach program in 1986, which the league subsequently uh, adapted, established the Rooney Commission to make sure that there was follow through on it, that it had some teeth to the extent that that could be enforced, is that you can't have 70% of your locker room coming from the African American side of the equation and 90% of them coming from working class and lower class because that's who produces the athletes. The middle class, people like me, we produce the same thing I produce. A corporate lawyer, a pediatric surgeon, and a computer engineer. My son is 6'7", couldn't hit his plate with his fart. <laughs> couldn't run out of sight if you gave him all day. But he's making, you know, uh, over $100,000 working in the computer software firm. He doesn't want to be an athlete. He wants to get to the place like Gates is where he can own an athletic team and hire somebody. That's the way the middle class thinks. Those kids are bringing all of these issues to the table. In NC2A, we have six black head coaches in football, Division I football. Mississippi State, Buffalo, Kansas State, uh, up at Washington, UCLA, and uh, brother they just hired in Miami. And so what we have, in most instances, under these circumstances, forget the ratings and the rankings of what they can do, the measurables and all the rest, we have a situation where we have Lawrence Welk talking to Pat Boone about what to do with Snoop Dogg and Ludacris and Eminem in the locker room. We don't even have enough people in there to change the nature of the discourse and be honest about these issues. It doesn't Lynn, when your kid gets to that, gets to that room, gets to that team, he's going to fall into a situation and he's going to want to be like the rest of the guys. He's going to want to be part of that group. And who is that group? 
Most of them are still coming from this kind of background, and it's going to be a constant struggle. I had a kid come up to me and say, Dr. Edwards, I'm so glad that you came in here and talked to us and told, because my folks didn't raise me like this. And this was just that he was walking around with his pants down across his butt. Because the rest of the team was walking down with their shorts showing. And I had to point out, hey, you know what, when that started? First time I saw it when I was doing a, a counseling in San Quentin, and they had these guys walking around with the head rags on and the pants halfway, but they were advertising they were willing to trade sex for favors, protection, cigarettes, dope, and so forth. They called them strawberries and toss-ups. Hey, after they heard that, I said, now you can continue to walk around with your pants like that. <laughs> hey, when they walked out, there wasn't nobody in there but me and the basketball team. When they walked out, because I put the coaches out. When they walked out, the coach said, some of them had their pants up so high, it looked like somebody had gave them a wedgie. And, uh, and, 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 so, and so these are issues that, that you simply have to deal with beyond these technical things. Thank you. Thank you. Anita, I think you were next. Okay. Thank you. The, the, the two elements that concern me the most when you talk about numbers crunching as a measurement of a person, the, the first is expectation that's created. Up until January 8th in Glendale, Arizona, one of the major plot lines for the BCS championship game was how is Chris Leak's career going to be viewed as the result of this game. The unspoken assumption of the question is if they lose this game, the kid's a flop. Where did that start? During the recruiting process when he was being hyped. The other thing is it, it loses the idea of who is this person. And what I think back to was a conversation with a major league baseball scout who happened to be talking about a college athlete, but he also did extensive work with high school athletes. And he said, you know why I'm here? We were at a game. He said, I'm here to watch that guy pointing to the pitcher back up third base. I said, that's it? He said, yeah, that's it. He said, I've got all the numbers. I mean, I got all the stuff everybody puts out. What I'm here to see is that when he makes a great pitch, or what he thinks is a great pitch, and it gets ripped into the gap, and somebody's standing on third base, what does he do? Does he put his head down? Does he mope? Does he slam his glove? Or does he race over and do what he's supposed to do in that situation? That's the only reason I'm here. And, and that's what videotape just can't capture. And, and the, only, the only other observation is that I'd like to pay tribute to the genius of Lefty Drizel, who managed to figure out that Len Elmore could play without having a list. One of the things that happens is these kids have their 15 minutes of glory uh, before they've done anything. They're on the list. They can talk about how they're on Rivals.com and what their number is compared with this, that, and the other. And then again, when it comes time to prove up. Now, what we're talking about is access to education, really, aren't we? Or are we access to a college, which could provide an education if you can get through the sports part. Is that what we're talking about? I think we've talked about a number of things. I mean, I don't... Is that the point of this? And I have a reason I ask that. I, I, you know, I think that part of the problem is that everybody is confused in terms of what we're talking about. Everybody is talking about some different aspect of what is an overall animal that somebody has to uh, put a leash on 
put a saddle on and direct in a reasonable direction. Uh, at this point, some people are talking about education. Other people are talking about uh, the uh, enterprise of collegiate athletics. Some people are talking about the kids. What's happening to the kids? Some people are talking about what's going, to, what's happening with the institution. Where are we, and where are we headed? And 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 the point that I've been trying to make here all morning is we're one tragedy away, one tragedy away, and it's all set up. Every piece is in place for a kid to come into a place who has been disappointed, who is armed, who is identifying or affiliated, who is angry, some coach who doesn't know who he's dealing with, in a locker room where this kid may feel he has a lot of support for his position and he just starts shooting. At that point now, everybody is going to have to step back and say, what do we have here? What in the hell have we been talking about? And how did it come to this point? And the politicians, the press, the faculties are going to demand it. So what I'm saying is, let's look at this monster that we are creating and is already a long way toward being completed and make a decision. Are we talking about an academic athletic partnership? Or are we talking about the commodification of kids toward the end of developing greater, more marketable 21st century gladiators? Because if that's what we're talking about, we are in deep trouble. If for no other reason than because of the basic raw materials that we're now working with. Mike, Mike and then uh, Jerry. <clears throat> now, I want to ask Mr. Crumey the same question I've asked every time we've had students on a panel like this. I'd, I'd be interested in your view of the ethics of what you went through in the recruiting process. And if you were giving either us or the NCAA suggestions on how you would change or make adjustments in the process, what advice would you give us? In regards to the recruiting process as a whole or the media aspect? Just, how, do you, how do you do that in a free society? What's that? How do, how do, you, how do you lower the exposure of all of this in a, in a free society? How do, you, how, do you, how do you do that in, uh, I mean, I'm interested if, if, if there are legitimate ways that the NCAA can deal with this, uh, I'm interested in being a party and helping some of that happen. And I'd, I'd be interested in what your views are on how we do that. Well, when there's regulations on recruiting from the aspect of uh, college coaches, you know, there's uh, dead periods in the, uh, the course of the year where college coaches can't call you, uh, which uh, Coach McGregor uh, said there's actually people getting away with a text message. I didn't experience that, but um, there's there's regulations, the NCAA, on how uh, coaches can talk to you, how when they can talk to you, where they can talk to you, to what level your exposure to college coaches and recruiting is uh, throughout the year going up to it. And if if there is to be um, a lessening, it had to follow, I think, the same thing. It's just the idea that when you're doing recruiting, um, as, a, as, a, as a prospect, you like the dead periods. You like the periods where you can just focus on what you're doing rather than having to answer phone calls all the time. And I think um, in that aspect, that's a way that 
um, similar regulators, similar rules of the dead periods and the, and the uh, giving prospects time to make up their own minds outside of the constant barrage of calls because that's, that influences um, your thought process and, and, and decision making so much. I don't know if that answered your question, but um, yeah, there's, there is a dead period for recruiters, but when it comes to media, there isn't. And uh, you know, that leaves open uh, plenty, plenty of time for phone calls and harassment. Jerry, your question. Um, yes, I, I guess I have a statement and a question. Um, but this picks up with Harry, or the themes that you were talking about. It seems to me that um, what has been lost in our recruiting process as it's evolved has been the sense of understanding what it is that we're doing in the context of the well-being of the student and the well-being of the university. Uh, now, this involves a whole lot of things. Uh, I haven't heard very much, uh, Mr. Burton, in terms of what you're doing. Uh, you don't mention academics. Uh, all you're looking at is, is one side of the SA equation. Uh, and how is the well-being of the student being served by just looking at that and nothing else? So um, I think if we're going to bring some sanity back into this process, uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing that serves the well-being of that student and the well-being of the university that the student winds up at? And if we don't have that in, in what we're thinking about, uh, then all is lost. And I think that, that a lot is lost right now because that hasn't been considered very much. Mr. McGregor, you're talking about losing your influence and, and, your, and your control in the process. And as you described it, what you had been doing was really serving a lot of the well-being of the student. You had this student right in front of you, you'd worked with him for many years, and that was a part of your context. It wasn't just a, a hunk of meat that could run the 40-yard dash in a certain length of time, which is kind of what it's become. So I guess my question is, is it, for all of you, is do you have any thoughts on specific actions that we might take from your perspective that would help return us to thinking about the well-being of the student and the well-being of the university? Because that's an, another important part of the equation that and I they, think And these need to lost. be brief, if you can, because we've got two more questions before we break up. I, I mean, I, as I mentioned in the statement, I, I would. I am very concerned about the academics. To say it's not on, on the thing is actually incorrect. Um, but that's, I didn't mention it, so I understand that, that you would think that, and that's fair. A uh, couple of issues, though. I did mention in the opening statement that I think that junior college correspondence courses, those sorts of things are something that needs to be addressed, not just diploma mills. But that uh, needs to come into it. Uh, I think that would be for the well-being of the student as well as the, the universities right. and their the validity of their degrees that they bestow on people. Anybody else have a comment? Yeah, I'm, let me just, do, I'll be very brief. Is I, I, the, the thing that I mentioned, I think that there must be, the, the diversity is not just window dressing. It's a functional operational imperative. There must be an increase in the numbers of, uh, of minority coaches uh, at the Division One level, particularly in football and basketball, where these where these where these uh, this recruitment takes place. Uh, we must change the character of the dialogue and discussion that goes on at the highest levels about these kids. The second thing is there have to be an emphasis on the 
kinds of issues that these kids are bringing to the university. It's not enough for, uh, to do what the, what the state of California has done, is by saying, which is to simply say, we're not going to have these kids on campus. We're going to make it so that they can't even participate in collegiate athletics because they're too dangerous, too disruptive, and we're, we're afraid of them. We've got to deal with the kids as they come on campus because they're, some of them are going to get even through that kind of a net. And I think that the third thing is the faculties and the administrations must begin to take a more direct and active hand in, in, in sports and realize they have a responsibility as part of that university community. That is the, the ultimate safety net, the environment that the kids find themselves in and, and, and not find themselves isolated over in intercollegiate athletics and, and essentially in the sports sounds. press. Yeah, Jenny, good point. Uh, I think I agree with most of what you just said, uh, Dr. Edwards, but really I think, first of all, we definitely need more black coaches, but um, I think that the white coaches we have now have got to hold students and student athletes accountable, which is implicitly you're saying they're not, and that you have to have black ones in order to do that. I don't entirely agree with that, but I still agree that we have to have more. No one said anything except Anthony about parents, and you said it about your own father. Um, and so I, I guess I'd like to ask the two football coaches here to comment whether the uh, parents, if you will, of your student athletes uh, over the last six to eight years have changed, if you will, and have sort of bought into the celebrity, the rivals.com, the, you know, they've become sycophants and they're part of the posse, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think as a high school football coach, parents have definitely changed. Um, it's, it's a, you know, what can you do for me now type of generation as opposed to, you know, the loyalty in the old days that you had to the, to the high school. Um, you know, the, the parents are, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden see that uh, Johnny got a full football scholarship to wherever. Why isn't my son getting the same type of offer? Why isn't he, isn't he getting treated the same way? Things along those lines. Um, yeah, I think without a doubt, parents have fallen into it hook, line, and sinker. Um, even in the D.C. area, we had a situation where a parent went out and bought his own boys club organization. And with, with the stipulation that his son would play defense in every game. The parent went away for a weekend, okay, and the team was playing its last game of the season, and if they win this game, they go to the championship. The boy played in, on every play, but did not play defense, played on offense. The parent came back who owned the organization, and he disbanded the team and fired the coach. And uh, again, I think it shows you where parents' heads are for the most part, that you know, it's all about me, it's all about the, the adulation for my son and, and, and all the great things that he can achieve uh, for himself as opposed to the team. Like one of the things we do at DeMatha, I, I think education is important. Uh, we, you know, we actually have, my wife comes in and uh, she runs life skill classes for our kids, even to a point of etiquette. You know, what fork do you use? What, what spoon do you use? Uh, you know, how to answer a telephone, how to meet someone, things along those lines. But I think anything we can do to educate the parent and take the, you know, let them understand it's okay if your son isn't, isn't the absolute best. Coach Bunning and then Andrea, you have the last question. I think there's a real cross-section out there. I mean, uh, I think you're going to have some parents that to see it as the ticket to the NFL. 
and they really don't care. I think there are a lot that, that know that their son is not going to play in the NFL, and they are tickled to death that he is with a particular program, and he's going to get a great education at the university they've chosen. So I think there's a really great cross-section of there. I do believe that uh, um, you know holding them accountable is extremely important. Uh, each one of my players, as we entered the season this year, had a 2.0 grade point average, but uh, seven games in the season, I was fired. Uh, so those things, you need to win. It's still all about winning. Can I say, say one thing? Let me, can I say, say one thing, please? Right. I mean, this is I, th there are parents out there that are pulling guns on coaches. Okay, they the the more elite the athlete is projected. I don't care if he's in junior high school. You tend to get a a, a parental culture and climate going where the parents want not just to be involved but to dictate and ultimately to be paid. So I'm, I'm telling you what's going on out there on the ground where parents go to games in some instances armed and you every now and then it breaks through in the media but as director of parks in Oakland I saw it more than once. I saw shootings over a kid getting playing time. So I'm, 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 what I'm saying here is let's not uh, uh, fail to understand the gravity of where we are here. Absolutely. Andrea. It's hard to follow, Dr. Edwards. <laughs> I appreciate what you've said today. It's opened up a, a whole new um, world, I think, for some of us, at least me. Um, but I, I got the impression that most of this panel, and we appreciate all of you being here today, a lot of this is about the Internet and what's happened in popular culture today and what the internet has brought upon us. That's We wouldn't have been talking about this 10 or 15 years ago. We're talking about it today. And in our universities, we defend it, we applaud it, and we celebrate it. And we say the internet should be open. Everyone should have access not only to everything, but to all of us. And so I look at what Rivals.com is doing, and I commend Bobby Burton for being here today and coming and talking about it and explaining his methodology and what's on the website. And he has a business to run, those types of businesses that we promote and defend and celebrate on the Internet, just like ESPN does. And I don't think any of this is going away. I think we all recognize that. And to wish for the past is not something we should be thinking about because it's not coming back. I think what we have to do is look forward Look at how the Internet's going to impact the next 10 years and the next 15 years, what technology is coming, and how we integrate that into what we teach our kids and how we put them forward and how we encourage institutions to do more of what Dr. Edwards is saying, to work with their, to work with the students, to be more part of their lives, to educate the high school students like Coach McGregor does. It's, it, it, it almost gets back, in my opinion, to more of the hands-on training that these kids had before the Internet that we've gotten away from because it might not be considered politically correct in this day and age. But I think our focus going forward needs to be on the impact that the Internet has, not how we stop it, because that would um, be anathema to everything we do on our campuses. Okay, we're going to continue uh, this at lunch. The commission has lunch next door. The panelists are certainly invited to join us. And we'll start back in here at 1.45. But we all are very grateful to the six of you for coming with us and uh, sharing this topic, uh, this discussion. And we'll be talking more about it uh, as a commission. But thank you all very much for being with us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. 
For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.